0: The Bible states that uh, there is no one good, no not one, before, before God. It states that we have all sinned and fallen short of his glory. It also states somewhere else that uh, coming into this world, we actually stand as children of wrath. We've all been condemned because of Adam's sin. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and how it frees us to serve you without reservation. I'm so glad that it speaks of you and your righteousness. Thank you for sending Yeshua, Jesus, to die on the cross, that we would have eternal life here and now and then to come in your presence. Teach us, teach me, Lord, this morning what you will and my prayer is that whatever is not of you that it would be lost in translation. Amen. We have a sister congregation, Beth Sar Shalom. And uh, in that format, our pastor, senior pastor Steve Shermet, is their congregational leader. And what Steve did at, towards the end of last year, he, uh, he put both of us on the same reading plan to take us through the Bible in a year, which I thought was a great idea. And uh, we've, all been, we've all been reading up, up to this morning. Uh, I was asked to choose one of the passages within this last week, <clears throat> from today to last week, uh, from that reading plan that we have. And I chose, I chose today's reading, which is uh, the one in the New Testament that brings us into the Book of Romans. Uh, the first 17 verses of the Book of Romans. We will probably spend most of our time in verses 16 and 17. And it'll, it'll be like being on Pacific Ocean Highway for the first 15 verses. We're just going to cruise, and, and it'll go rather quickly. But um, I've looked at a, a bunch of different plans, a bunch of different overviews concerning the book of Romans. Uh, read through some long ones, read through some short ones, some mediocre ones. Um, they were all better than what I had in mind to begin with, so I was okay with that. But I picked a short short version, and I believe it has plenty of information for us for this morning. Now, Paul Paul was on his third missionary journey when he wrote the book of Romans. He was in the city of Corinth, and in chapter 15, he tells the Romans that, uh, or he tells us how he'd been planning to visit the Romans for quite a long time, but God had redirected his routes. He sent him into Macedonia. He sent him into Achaia Achaia, to do other things, um, including uh, pick up some some contributions that had been set aside to be delivered to Jerusalem for the poor. He had had uh, friends in Rome, according to chapter 16. If you haven't read chapter 16 in some time, not only was it a a letter of preparation as he made his way to Rome, but it's a who-who. It's a who's who, who who. It's a who's who. In Paul's life, in his world, he begins to mention people that are family, that are friends. Um, and and he, being, he begins to say things about them, of how he loves them, and, and why he prayed to God for them. You know, he was so thankful for them. And if you ever get a chance, today maybe sometime, read through that chapter. The first 16 or 17 verses, he speaks of people that are in his life. In uh, chapter 3, verse 8, and chapter 6, verse 1, he he begins to answer some of the accusations that were made about him. In chapter 15, again, he explains to the Romans why why he hadn't uh, as yet visited them. On his way to Spain, he told them that he would uh, make a greater effort to stop by Rome first and then make his way back or make his way to Spain. Everyone that I've, I've read agrees that Paul, in his letter to the Romans, probably gives the grandest presentation of Christian doctrine anywhere in Scripture. In, uh, in Habakkuk 2.4, the statement made by the prophet is that the just shall live by faith. It's been said that Romans is one of the three books that was written to explain that passage. In Romans 1.17 Paul wrote that for in, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And as it is written, the just shall live by faith in Galatians 311, Paul states, clearly no one who relies on the law is justified, but God or before God, because the righteous will live by faith in Hebrews 1038, the author of Hebrews wrote, but my righteousness, my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I take no pleasure in him. The basic theme, of course, in Rome is justification, and it means to be declared righteous by God, to live a righteous life before him. Righteousness is used more than 40 different times or 40 different times in, in the book of Romans. The book easily falls into three separate parts. Chapters one through eight, God's righteousness and salvation, Paul writes about. In chapters 9 through 11, he writes of God's righteousness and Israel. In chapters 12 through 16, he speaks of God's righteousness and practical Christian living. Verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1 are probably the key statement for the entire book. The argument in Romans, of course, is that he defends the righteousness of God. Justification is God's gracious act by which he declares the believing sinner righteous in Christ Jesus because of his work on the cross for us. What I'd like to talk about for a few minutes is what happens when we believe. I believe the first thing that happens is justification. The word is probably better understood if, if you take it as the event that takes place in our lives when God declares us not guilty. Once, once the event takes place, He begins sanctification, and I better understand that by calling it the process. The event happens, he justifies us, and then he begins the process of the new believer, and he begins to impart his righteousness. He begins to build the holy character, and he begins to make us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. It's been written that a righteous standing before God leads to holy life before men. Another another old sage wrote that we are not saved by works or by faith or faith plus works, but we are saved by a faith that works. This comes out of James 2.14 through 26. James' conclusion on that is that uh, for the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Now, so much for the overview. On our way to verses 16 and 17... There's so much in, in, those, uh, in those starting 15 verses that Paul writes about. There are many little nuggets there that I don't want to leave out. We'll go quickly, but we'll hit on each one. In verse one Paul gives us his credentials. And at this point, I, I realize that I'm probably pointing out the obvious. Many of you have gone through this, but bear with me. He calls himself a slave of Messiah Yeshua, of Jesus Christ. The Greek word for that is doulos. And uh, I I know that there is probably at least six or seven different words that are used for for slave and for servant. But the one that truly means a bond slave or a bond servant of Jesus Christ is the word doulos. And Paul uses that that term to describe himself before Christ. His favorite title for Messiah or for, for Christ Jesus is Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. In the Greek, the word is kurios, and it describes someone who has undisputed possession of a person or a thing. He is a master. He is owner. He is absolute master and absolute owner of that person or thing. The opposite of that, of course, would be doulos, would be slave. And Paul thought himself thought of himself of a slave to Christ Jesus, his master, his Lord. He knew that that Christ loved him that he gave his life for him and therefore Paul was sure of one thing that he no longer belonged to himself but entirely to Christ Jesus in verse 2 we see that that the news of Christ the gospel was prophetical it's found in the Torah in the Old Testament in verse 3 Christ Jesus was born of the seed of David according to the flesh in verse 4 Paul declares that the Son of God was because he was raised with power, according to the spirit of holiness through the resurrection proved him to be the son of God. In verses five through six, Paul received grace. He received, he received his apostleship. And along with that, he received his marching orders. He was given the faith and the obedience to take the message to all the nations in Christ's name. In verse seven, he begins his salutation. Grace and shalom. He greets he greets them. Interestingly, interestingly enough, as you as you read through all the epistles, pardon me, as you read through all the epistles that Paul wrote, in his salutations, he always begins with grace and peace. Every single one, it never fails. Um, in first and second Timothy, he adds to the mix mercy. He says, Grace and shalom from God, our father, and then he adds mercy to that mix. And it's something that, that must, have, uh, uh, must have stuck with the, other, with the other apostles. Peter in his two epistles, first and second, Peter also uses grace and shalom to his people. Grace and peace. He, uh, he begins to pray for those that he already knew He prays for those that he hadn't even met yet. It's been written that it is ever our privilege and our duty to bear our loved ones and our fellow believers in Christ, bringing them to the throne of grace. How important prayer is in our our life. There was an old sage, Gregory of Nyssa, that wrote, wrote this little poem concerning prayer. He wrote that the effect of prayer is union with God. And if someone is with God, he is separated from the enemy. Through prayer, we guard our chastity. We control our tempers and we rid ourselves of vanity. It makes us forget injuries. We overcome envy, defeats, injustice, and it makes amends for sin. Through prayer, we obtain physical well-being. We receive a happy home, a strong, well-ordered society. Prayer is the seal of virginity and pledge of faithfulness in marriage. It shields the traveler, it protects the sleeper, and it gives courage to those who keep vigil. It will refresh you when you are weary and comfort you when you are sorrowful. Prayer is the delight of the joyful, as well as the solace for the afflicted. Prayer is intimacy with God and contemplation of the invisible. And prayer is the enjoyment of things present and the substance of things to come. In verse 13, Paul tells us that he was held up in coming to the, the Romans. He tells us that uh, God had other plans, sending him to again to Macedonia, to Achaia. In 14, we, Paul gives us the understanding that his message was a global message. His friendship, his obligation was to the wise, to the simple, to the cultured, the uncultured, to the learned, to the unlearned. His message was for for the entire world, to the Jew first, and then also to the Gentile. So we get to verse 16. Stay with me. When I was preparing for this message, my wife asked me, was I going to have any video clips? Was I going to have any graphics? Any special music? And I said, no, of course not. And she said, why not? I said, well, Steve does that. I don't do that. She says, whatever you do, keep on smiling. (laughs) And I said, why, honey? He says, because you're going to be boring. (laughs) So, But I was willing to take that chance. In verse 16 of Romans... Paul announces that he's not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to me, not being ashamed of something is being proud. Are we proud of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are we proud of the work that Christ did on the cross for us? He was proud of the good news of Messiah. He was proud to proclaim the message of Christ and his work on the cross. Let's take a little bit of time and consider what Paul had to go through for the sake of the good news of Christ. In Acts 16... 16 through 40, Paul had been in prison in Philippi for the message of Christ. When's the last time you were in prison for speaking the truth of Jesus Christ and his salvation? In Acts 17, 1 through 9, Paul had been chased out of Thessalonica. I can remember times when I was chased out of bars, but it wasn't for preaching the message of Christ. When was the last time you and I were chased out of a city, a whole city? because we were preaching the good news of Jesus Christ and his salvation and our freedom from sin. In Acts 17, 10 through 15, Paul is smuggled out of Berea. You all remember the story? Yeah. He had a nephew that told, told the captain of the guard what was going on and they had to take him down a wall to get him out of the city. In Paul, or in, uh, in Acts 17, 16 through 34, Paul was laughed at in Athens. When was the last time when we were sharing Christ? We were laughed at. In Corinth, his message was, for the, was, was, uh, was foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews. And you and I know if we went into Second Corinthians, this is only the tip of the iceberg of the things that Paul had to go through. For sharing the message of Jesus Christ coming to give a lost world Salvation. It's been written that there can seldom have been a time in history when men were more universally seeking for salvation. It's precisely that salvation and that power and that escape that Christianity came to offer mankind. The good news is the power of God which produces salvation, the one who who receives the salvation, who repents and believes in Christ, to the Jew especially, but equally to the Gentile, the non-Jew. So what were we saved from? Or better yet, what are the particulars of our salvation? When I came to know Christ, I grabbed, I grabbed that word, salvation, I, I ran with it. I knew that God had forgiven me of my sins, but I never stopped to consider what was encompassed in that term salvation for me. And I began, I began to dig. And the more I did, the more I fell in love with the salvation that Christ has given me. And let me share some of these things with you. In Matthew 9, 21 and 22, you remember the story of of the woman that had, um, had had this illness. She had this hemorrhage. And she had spent all her money on doctors, physicians that couldn't help her. But she had heard about Messiah Jesus being in town and she went to go find him. And in verse, in verse 21, 22, she said to herself, if only I could touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned to her and said, take heart, daughter, your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. In Luke 8, 36, you remember that uh, Christ had gone to the the area of the Gadarenes. And there was a, a, a demoniac there who was chained always tearing the chains off, always tearing his clothes off. The dude was naked, but constantly beating himself and anyone who would come near him. And he was tortured day and night. And yet Christ touched him. And those who had seen him, they told of how this formerly demonized man had been healed. And this man wanted to stay with, with Messiah. But Messiah told him, no, go your way, go to your family. He went and proclaimed throughout the whole town, What Christ had done for him. You and I have had answered prayer. We have had Jesus, we have had Christ answer prayers healing, physical, emotional. We have prayed to have him release us from stress, and he's done that. When's the last time when we received that answered prayer that we went throughout the town, throughout the city of Tucson, declaring, This is what God has done for me? Just a thought. As we speak about healing, we know that this, this salvation from healing is not a completely otherworldly type of healing. We have, folks, we have believers today that are, that are still tortured by, by illness, still in hospitals. But God's aim is to rescue the body for the here and now to give him glory, no matter what it goes through. And the soul... For the eternity that is to come. And we will continue to give him glory there. In Matthew 8, 25 and 27. We see that the the disciples. Had gotten into a boat. On the Sea of Galilee. And as they set out. The winds began to be contrary. For those of you that have experienced hurricanes and typhoons. You know what. Just a touch of the winds being contrary, especially being being on a boat, small or large. And uh, they started to get they started to panic. And so they wake the Savior up because he's sleeping. He's calmly sleeping. And they let him know, master, help us. We're about to die. And he turns to them and says, why are you so cowardly? You people of little faith. And then he got up and he rebuked the winds and the sea. And it was dead calm. And the men were amazed and said, what sort of person is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? You see, God gives us a salvation from danger. Now, it isn't isn't that he gives us a life free of danger and perils. We still go through our issues in the tissues, and we still have things that happen in life to us. But knowing that God has given given us this salvation, it gives us a security of soul that no matter what is happening, we belong to him. There's a gentleman by the name of Rupert Brooke in the beginning days of World War I, a believer who wrote this as, as he prepared to go into, into war. He said, safe shall be my going, secretly armed against all death's in endeavor. Safe though all safety's lost, safe where men may fall. And if these poor limbs die, safest of all. Robert Browning wrote, "If I stoop into a darkness or, or into a dark, tremendous sea of cloud, it is but for a time. I press God's lamp close to my breast. Its splendor, sooner or late, will pierce the gloom, and I shall emerge one day." That's the security that, that God gives us in salvation. In uh, Acts two forty, we are told that we. Receive a salvation from a perverse generation. In many many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. That still holds true today. In Matthew 18.11, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. We are given a salvation from lostness. Those of us that have received this salvation, we're no longer lost. In Matthew one twenty one, it was stated about Mary and she will bring forth the son and she will call his name Jesus and he will save his people from their sins. See, we have been given a salvation that saves us from our sins. In Romans 5 6 through 11. For when we were still without strength in our weakest moments in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his love, his own love towards us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And much more than that, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more. Having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only that, but we will also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom we have now received reconciliation. We have the salvation from the wrath of God. You see, Christ took our place on the cross. That's our rightful place. We are born into this world in Adam's sin, and our rightful place is that once, once we are born, place ourselves on the cross, because we're condemned. In Romans 13, 11, Paul stated, And do this knowing that the time, and that is the time is now, and it is high time to awake out of our sleep, for our salvation is nearer than we first believed. In 2 Timothy 14, Paul wrote, and the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me, preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Our salvation finds its full meaning and blessedness in the triumph of Christ Jesus. Now, a couple of things that we'll be talking about. We have been. We talked about justification, the event. We talked about sanctification, the process And let's talk a little bit about about faith in its simplest, in its simplest form. In its simplest form, it means loyalty, it means steadfastness, and it means to endure. In 2 Thessalonians 1, 4 Paul wrote so that we are so that we ourselves boast of you among the congregations of God for your patience, for your faith, and in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endured. They were patient. They endured tribulation and persecutions. And they were faithful. Faith also means conviction. The conviction that something is true. Faith is the, is the assent that the Christian message is, is true. And that we believe in the resurrection of Christ. 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen. If Messiah is not risen, then your faith is futile or futile. You are still in your sins. But our faith is a conviction that what has happened is true. And we are no longer troubled by our our sins that will keep us from God's glory in heaven. Faith also means religion, the Christian religion, Judaism. Judaism. You name it, faith is, is that the term faith is used in that way. Uh, we tell ourselves each other, as brothers and sisters, are you in the faith? Are you in Christ? Are you in Jesus? Are you keeping the faith? We use that, that word just like that too, don't we? Practically speaking, though, we can look at faith as our indestructible hope. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, 5 through 8. He says, Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So I believe that faith, as Paul uses it, in most times in his, in his epistles, means total acceptance and absolute trust. That means you and I are betting, betting our lives that there is a God. It means being utterly sure that Christ Jesus and what he said, and we're betting all time and eternity on that assurance. Robert Louis Stevenson wrote, I believe in God. If I woke up in hell, I would still believe in him. That's definite assurance. Faith begins for me. Faith begins when a person is at least willing to hear the message of Christ Jesus. And then that person hears and then agrees that they have heard the truth. That's sort of the mental assent. I've heard the truth and now I agree that I've heard the truth. Too many have heard the truth and know very well that it's true. But they, don't, but they don't change their actions to meet the knowledge that they have received. And thirdly, once we have received the truth, we believe that truth, we find ourselves coming into total surrender. The person hears the message of Christ in full-fledged faith, agrees that it's true, and they cast themselves upon it in a life of total surrender and obedience. Those are hard words because we rarely we rarely look at ourselves as having really done that in total faith and obedience. But we should. Justification. We'll come back to justification. Remember, you'll better understand that if you know that to be the event. John MacArthur, in his book, according uh, the gospel, according to the apostles, writes this justification is a forensic or purely legal term. It, it describes what God has declared about the believer or about the sinner. In fact, justification effects no actual change in whatsoever, or whatsoever in the sinner's nature or character. Justification is a divine judicial edict, it changes only our status. It carries ramifications that, that guarantee that other changes, other changes will follow. Example. How many here are married? If you remember the day of your wedding, okay, for Irene and I, we stood before the justice of the peace. Okay, we had, we had the best man, we had the matron of honor, I think that's what they call him. It's been, it's been a while, we're going on 43 years, so it's been a while. Um, we, we went through the ceremony and when the justice of the peace, said, by the authority vested in me, I now per, or declare, I now pronounce you man and wife. I remain the same. Irene remained the same. But our status completely changed. The the the, the 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 person of honor on both sides, our families, our friends, they no longer looked at us as individuals anymore. Even though I was exactly the same. Hard headed Prideful, all that stuff remained the same. But my status had changed. I now became a Mr. and Mrs. I was married. The IRS no longer looked at me the same. So security did not look at me the same. The law changed its view on me. The court system, before I left, it's no longer just you. See, that's the event that happens with us in justification. God declares you and me not guilty. He changes your status We were born condemned, and then he changes that status, no longer condemned, but now you're not guilty. Another example, our court system. When somebody somebody is going through a trial, up until the day that the judge declares the verdict, he's the accused, right? He's the accused throughout the whole process. When the judge declares the verdict, either guilty or not guilty, the status of that person will change. He remains the sinner that he is, right, at that, at that point, or his character doesn't, doesn't change at all, but his status is completely changed. If it's not guilty, that person will walk out of that courthouse completely justified, not guilty, and never have to go back there again unless he commits another crime. But he's free. That's justification. See if we can find my place, huh? In biblical terms, justification is a divine verdict. God declares you and me, who know him, not guilty, fully righteous, not part righteous, but you have full righteousness in Christ. It is the reversal of God's attitude toward the sinner. This is what we looked like before. As a sinner, we were born condemned. Romans 3, 22, and 23. And it is by righteousness that comes, it is a righteousness that comes from God through the faithfulness of, of Yeshua the Messiah to all who continue trusting, for it makes no difference whether Jew or Gentile, right? Sin, all have sinned and come short of earning God's praise. We come into this world already fallen short. I mean, we're beautiful, right? They wrap us up in the blankets, they, they, they do cariños to us, they love us. They, they touch our cheeks. You're beautiful. Oh, you're so innocent. But we're born into this world. Sinners. As a believer, God vindicates us. In Romans, in Romans 6.18, it says, And after you have been set free from your sin, you have become enslaved to righteousness. Once we were sinners under God's wrath, Romans 1.18 declares, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth of unrighteousness. And that's who we were. When we learned to speak, we, we knew that even more. But when we became a believer, now we fall under God's blessing. Romans 8.1, 8, right? There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You've been set free from sin. You who know him. You are no longer to walk according to the flesh, but now according to the spirit that God has given you, the spirit of holiness. Justification is more than a simple pardon. There is a difference. Pardon alone will still leave the sinner without any merit before God. So when God justifies you and me, he gives us divine righteousness. And if we don't, if we understand anything at all, we need to understand when God declared you not guilty, he declared you not guilty. He, um, in Romans 4:22 to 25, and therefore it was accounted, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone, but it was imputed to him. And there's that word, imputed, means to put into account. Your account was empty. God puts something into your account, and that's His righteousness. He says, uh, it shall be imputed to us to who who believe in him who raised up Jesus, our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Jesus, his own infinite merit, thus becomes the ground on which you and I as believers stand before God. Romans 519 declares that for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. So justification elevates the believer to a realm of full acceptance and divine privilege in Christ Jesus. Therefore, because of justification, we as believers were perfectly free of any charge of guilt, according to Romans 8:33. In, in Romans 5:17, we are adopted as sons and daughters. In Romans 8:15, uh, in Romans 8:17, we become fellow heirs. Of Christ Jesus. You understand the ramifications of that? In uh, 1 Corinthians 6:17, we are united with Christ so that we become one with Him. In Galatians 3:27 and 29, we will always be in Christ. It can never be taken away from you. There is no Jew, there is no Greek, there is no slave, there is no free. There is no male, no female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. So in Christ, we are also Abraham's seed. And if we are in Abraham's seed, we are heirs according to that promise. Christ Jesus is in us, according to Colossians 127. And these are all forensic realities. These are all things that flow out of justification. And if you know Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then all these realities are yours. If you do not, then before God, you can only stand one way and that's condemned. In Romans three twenty three, Paul stated that all have sinned and all have come, all have come short of God's glory. There is none righteous, no, not one. In in Romans 6:23, Paul states that the wages, the wages for that sin, the wages for that condemnation is death. But he says God offers a free gift of eternal life if you turn to Christ Jesus. In Romans 8:10, or in Romans 10:8 through 10, Paul writes that we are to repent of our sins. We are to confess with our mouths that Christ Jesus is Lord that he is kurios, that he is master, that he's absolute owner. We are to believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. He says, and we will be saved because from the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Shall we pray? Father, I thank you for your love and how well you know us. I thank you that you sent Christ Jesus to save us from ourselves, from our sin. It's amazing that we come into this world filled with sin and condemned before your presence. And what's really amazing is that you sent Christ to die for us on the cross. He shed his blood for all that are here. And all we have to do is turn to you. Repent. Repent of our sinness, of our of our sins. repent of our constant running away from you and believe that you, God, raised Jesus from the dead through the power of holiness. And we believe, we believe in our hearts that you are who you are and we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord. May all who are here know you. For those that don't, may they come to you. May they confess you as Lord and Savior, may they bow the knee, may they can confess with their tongues that you are Yeshua Messiah. Thank you, Father, for what you've done, for what we could never do. And it's in your name we pray.